0: Hello and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live, a show where I hunt down passionate and combative people from the world and drag them in front of a camera for a chat. This week, I have the great privilege of speaking with political commentator, lawyer, freedom fighter, founder of the media sensation Rebel News, and Justin Trudeau's arch nemesis, Ezra Ravant. Ezra, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks very much. Great to see you again.
0: Look, unusually for a Canadian, you have a large presence here in Australia via the work of Rebel News. Indeed, during the COVID pandemic, there was only really a handful of media outlets covering the resistance. And I would personally like to thank you for the work you did providing that voice.
1: Well, it's nice of you to say I credit our Australian correspondent, Avi Yamini, who's a one man army. And there's also other outstanding Australians like Rukshan Fernando. Who really made a name for himself as a citizen journalist, I think that citizen journalists filled the gap left by the official regime media. They lost their journalistic instincts, they were no longer skeptical, they were no longer even curious, they no longer believed in the other side of the story. They certainly didn't believe in the little guy. So there was a huge void, and Avi and Rukshan and other citizen journalists filled the gap. And I think it was a wonderful use of technology. And it was a wonderful expression of the best of how the internet can give people a voice who haven't had one in the past.
0: Yes, I think you got a bit more traction out of Australia's COVID coverage than you expected when our police turned into a complete totalitarian state overnight, not exactly the image Australia usually promotes to the world.
1: Yeah, Avi, by chance, is based in Melbourne. I mean, he could have been in Sydney, he could have been in other places. And Melbourne really was one of the most locked down cities in the, in the free world. I mean, comparable only to places like China. And it was amazing for us in Canada to see it. And we have a fair-sized viewership in America and the UK. So although a lot of the details were things that only Australians would understand, the larger theme was relevant to us as well. And other themes in Australia, people around the world care. Freedom of speech, for example. How close do you want to get to communist China, for example? Wokeism, whether it's renaming Australia Day or, um, you know, uh, carbon taxes and shutting down mining. These are themes around the world, and I think that uh, it's been a pleasure through Avi and our Australian team to get to know Australia, and I think I, I think the world is interested in what's going on down there because we're fighting the same fights in many other countries.
0: Well, while the jealous mainstream media outlets refer to you as far-right grifters, Rebel News is actually an activist journalist organization, which is something that is praised when it sits on the left, but it's vanishingly rare on the right or even in the center. So allow me to ask the obvious question. You guys brand yourselves as rebels. What is it that Rebel News is rebelling from?
1: Well, when we started it just over eight years ago, I had actually had a TV show on a real TV station. Um, There were about 200 of us um, at a Canadian news network called the Sun News Network. And we just went out of business one day for regulatory reasons. And when we all went in to say our goodbyes and pick up our severance checks, I said to uh, seven of my colleagues, you, you, you and you come to my house. Let's see if we can recreate this on the Internet. And I felt like we were rebelling against three things. First of all, we were rebelling against the regulations that shut down the Sun News Network, where we all work, because that was subject to strong regulation, whereas the internet at that point was not. So we were rebelling against the government regulation of TV by going on the internet. We were rebelling against the technology, the old big studios, expensive cameras, you know, satellite internet, connections so we went to small cameras handheld cameras we did interviews by skype instead of satellite now everyone does that but eight years ago it was rather more rare and i think the most important thing we were rebelling against was the mindset the group think i think my biggest beef with the mainstream media isn't just that it's left-wing it's that it's all the same they don't really allow non-conformists anymore whether it's the theory of man-made global warming or skepticism about lockdowns or vaccine mandates. It's the sameness that kills me. That's why our motto is telling the other side of the story, reminding people that there is another side to the story. So those are the three things we were rebelling against. The government regulation, the old school, big studio, big cost technology, and the ideology. And I think there's a market for the other side of the story. And we've done fairly well.
0: That's back in the glory days when the internet was a hive of creativity and liberty. I remember those days. I was uh, quite young at that time, and we were making fan art and writing and had great chats. And now it's kind of the abyss. It's very difficult to go on there. But Rebel News has an audience that sits somewhere inside the conservative and libertarian sphere. It's, it's a strange mix. And the problem is conservatives aren't known for challenging authority while libertarians are nearly impossible to motivate into a sort of pitchfork-wielding mob. So how difficult is it to motivate a crowd on this side of politics and encourage people to care enough about an issue to facilitate real and meaningful social change?
1: Well, I think the pandemic and the lockdowns scrambled a lot of the old ideological uh, name tags. So for example, the Green Party in Canada. Five years ago, they were against big pharma. They would never, you know, they would be for natural health and supplements and exercise. And in Canada, suddenly the Green Party endorsed mandatory jabs. So there were a lot of Green Party people who suddenly didn't have a political home. In our country, we have a labor-oriented party called the NDP. Well, suddenly they were in favor of unions agreeing to governments and companies changing the collective agreement with workers to require them to get the jab. These are the same labor unions that fought against drug testing or other that would fight tooth and nail. If the company wanted something, they would go on strike or they would negotiate for it. All of a sudden, every labor union in Canada sold out its membership to the government. And so there was a lot of labor union people saying, hey, whatever happened to, you know, Solidarity Forever? feminists um, and and liberals who would have said my body, my, you know, keep your laws off my body, my body, my choice, except for the jab. And so um, people from all walks of life found themselves alienated from the establishment. So I actually don't use the word conservative as much now as I might have five years ago because I find that my allies in this new coalition, some of them are conservative for sure, But some of them are former Greens. Some of them are labor activists. I literally just yesterday received an email from a labor union. The union wants our help as Rebel News to fight against some government, some some corporate change. When was the last time a labor union would ask Rebel News for help? Well, actually, I remember when Avi Yamini went to the trades, the Building Trades Council in Melbourne, when their labor union leadership got offside with the people, again, ma- vaccine mandates. So, um, yeah, we're a little bit conservative, a little bit libertarian.
0: A, but I think the last
1: few years is...
0: There's some, fa- there's some fabulous uh, quotes from that union rebellion that I actually can't repeat on this channel, but they were well worth it. And Avi and Rakshan caught them on camera. Mm. So we can thank you for those that will live... Forever on the internet. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Uh, given that we have what could only be described as a, a pandemic of hypocrisy from polit- uh, politicians and the political class, how important then are independent journalists like yourself and can they survive? And I ask this because various nations and international bodies, including things like the World Health Organization, are demanding a crackdown on what they call misinformation in other words they are attempting to legislate approved thought so what does that mean for the journalist class
1: well it makes it a lot tougher when we started our company in 2015 there was very little censorship online not just that but there was no uh, there was no demonetization So Rebel News, in its first year and a half, we were on track to make a million dollars a year just in those little Skip Now ads, you know, those little ads that pop up on YouTube. A million bucks a year. You can hire a lot of journalists for that. But suddenly, we were completely demonetized. And then another function on YouTube called Super Chat, which is like a, a little tip jar, that was cut off too, costing us 400 grand a year. So really... We had a a million-and-a-half-dollar hole poked in the side of our boat. How do you survive? So it wasn't just the censorship. It was the demonetization. If we were on the left, we would be rolling in it, raking it in. And so I think one of the things we had to do was to develop a connection with our viewers to let them know that we needed their help directly. And so Rebel News literally gets nothing from our YouTube ads Even though we have 1.6 million YouTube subscribers, we've had hundreds and hundreds of millions of views, probably 2 billion views across all our platforms. But we survive, almost 80% of our funds comes from crowdfunding. And the average crowdfunding gift to Rebel News is just 58 bucks. So we have to, you know, we have no large, you know, we don't have Rupert Murdoch or an oligarch giving us the dough. We don't have a big corporate conglomerate like nine, we have to get our money 50 bucks at a time. And I think that makes us very honest and transparent and makes us very independent. There's no one who could pick up the phone and call me and say, fire Yamini, he's gone too far. Well, I mean, they can call me, but there's no one who holds that power over me or over Avi, because there's no one person or company or advertiser that has us over a barrel. Um, and... In fact, when we're persecuted by big tech or when Justin Trudeau does something illegal to strip us of our rights, we, we call on our people to help us. And Avi did that, too. In Australia, Victoria police kept arresting him falsely. He would show up at an event to be a journalist. They would arrest him and throw him in the back of a police truck or or just stop his journalism. He didn't really have the ability to fight back, but when we teamed up with him, we crowdfunded money to sue the police, which he just didn't have the dough to do on his own. But we chipped, we got Australians to chip in and the police admitted what they did was wrong and actually apologized to him. They didn't pay him any money, but they apologized and acknowledged that he was a legitimate reporter. And that's more valuable than anything. So my point is, we're, it's not just that we're independent. Um, in terms of our editorial. We're independent in our editorial because we're independent financially. And that's because we have thousands of grassroots people in Australia and elsewhere who are willing to give us 50 bucks if we do something they like.
0: It sounds to me, um, when I was growing up, which is late 90s or mid 90s, I was raised on this idea that free speech and the power of the market was all about how good you were as a journalist and how truthful your stories were. But that's clearly not the case because if that was true, they'd allow journalists like you to continue to operate in the free market of funds. But they went after your money. They tried to shut you down by demonetising you. Does that mean that the free press is not really a free press but more of an official consortium of interested parties who don't want to give up their hold?
1: Well, if you look around the world, a lot of the leading media companies are actually um, political playthings by oligarchs. Um, take the United States. The most influential newspaper, I would say, is the New York Times. It is owned by Carlos Slim, the richest man in Mexico. Uh, the Washington Post, the most influential newspaper in the capital city of America. It's owned by Jeffrey Bezos of Amazon. Um, why? Why? Are, is that? Are they making tons of money? No, they want a political seat at the table, and and I think that um, w- one way to be successful in the media is to find yourself a billionaire, but then you better do his bidding. Another way is to find yourself a huge conglomerate, but then you better be vanilla because you don't want to upset this uh, group of retail customers or that group. Um, But we can't be controlled that way. And so here's what happens. In Canada, let me just give you a quick example of something outrageous that was done to us that we managed to survive. Justin Trudeau nationalized the election debates. There used to be election debates in election time that were hosted by media companies. And there might be several and maybe a university or maybe a TV show, whatever. Justin Trudeau bizarrely nationalized them and took them over by the government. And then he banned his political enemies from attending. Including Rebel News, he literally refused to let us come to the debate. Oh, very, I'm not saying to be on the Very panel open at and
0: very open and free democracy. There, that sounds completely yeah. above board.
1: <laughs> so, so I'm not saying that he banned us from being an election debate moderator. I, I wouldn't ask for that, but just to even be in the building. So we went. We had to go to the federal court with an emergency court application. And because it was government run, the courts found twice, because he did this in the 2019 election, and then he did it again in the 2021 election, twice our rights were violated, twice we ran to court, and we were alone in court in the last election. No, no one else came to defend our freedom of speech or freedom of the press. And that was interesting to me, because other media could dislike our political shade. That's fine. But are they really fine with the principle being established that the government can pick and choose who does journalism? And the problem I'm getting to is besides oligarchs or big conglomerates, the final way media can operate these days is with government money. And in Canada, Justin Trudeau bails out literally 99 percent of the media. Ninety nine percent of the media in this country get government funds directly So they're never going to ask prickly questions of Trudeau. They're always going to be obedient. And of course, he's going to let them into his events like the debates because he controls them. Whoever pays the piper calls the tune. And Rebel News is very unusual in that we're one of the few independent media left in Canada.
0: Yes, well in Australia the media refuse to ask difficult questions of our politicians because they're afraid that if they do that they'll be disinvited from the campaign bus and then miss out on all the scoops for the rest of the election. Now that is not real journalism, that's cowardice, which is very disappointing to watch. But one of the most successful examples of activist journalism that I've seen at least in recent times, was your work in particular with the Canadian truckers and the Freedom Convoy that they set up. When the uh, usually polite and calm truckers of Canada descended on Ottawa, the entire world sat up and paid attention to the closest thing that we have seen to a civil uprising in the West for a long, long time. And Rebel News was a big part of their international notoriety which sparked sympathetic protests around the world, including here in Australia. We tried to have a little truckers protest Mm -hmm. as well. But I remember that you stood up and gave a speech to the Freedom Convoy. And it felt like one of those moments, like those bookmarks in political history, when you said, it is a cold day today. It is almost as cold as Justin Trudeau's heart. Did that period in politics, when you were standing there freezing to death, did that change your view of political leaders, especially Trudeau?
1: You know, what was interesting is that in Canada, you had every institution of the establishment support the lockdown, including the opposition parties, including all the media, including all the courts. There was no one against it, or so it seemed. And then you had this organic, authentic grassroots rebellion really led by no one, really funded by no one. They had a GoFundMe account, but it was shut down. And these were working class people, very diverse ethnic backgrounds, English Canadians, French Canadians from Quebec, people of all different backgrounds. And... It was finally visual proof because people would see this huge convoy and there were multiple threads of it. And they would last for miles and people came out just to witness it. And it was like they had a revelation that they had been lied to for years because everyone, every time you turn on TV or radio or the Internet or listen to any politician or listen to anyone in authority, you would hear, we all agree. We have to do this. We all agree. We have to do this. And people said, am I the only one? who's against the lockdown? Am I the only one who's against forced vaccinations with an experimental med, including on children, shutting down schools, shutting down businesses? Am I the only one who's, in Canada, they actually banned unvaccinated people from flying, even domestically? And we're the second largest country in the world.
0: Welcome to our world in Australia. We were banned from everything.
1: Yeah. Well, so those truckers were, were a moment where the fever broke and where people realized they weren't alone. And, And the first uh, political casualty was a leader of the so-called Conservative Party because he had instructed his caucus not to meet with the truckers. They said, the heck with you, and they threw him out as leader. Then a conservative premier of one of our uh, provinces was thrown out for the similar reasons. So those truckers got immediate political results. They started the, the relaxation and the end of various lockdown provisions. Those truckers showed more leadership than any other political group in the country had for three years. And again, just like we were citizen journalists, they were citizen activists. They were not funded or organized or arranged or scripted. It was such an organic movement. People felt truly patriotic because they saw it was their friends and neighbors doing it, not some officials. Every single institution in Canada has lost the public trust and and the lockdowns and the total collaboration amongst every elite. Just for an example, the Canadian Trucker Association denounced the truckers. The Canadian Restaurant and Food Service Association never said a word about their their, um, companies, their restaurant members being shut down. The Chambers of Commerce didn't have a word to say about businesses being shut down. Um, You know, even the, the, the religious leaders, churches were shut down. And most churches went along with this. Every single authority figure failed. And citizen journalists and citizen activists won the day.
0: Well, on that point, uh, putting words in print definitely has its own power. But in front of that half-frozen, shivering crowd that you mentioned, the importance of the camera... Uh, you said, and I quote, there are two competing narratives. The government says you're a racist. The government says you're a sexist. The government says you're violent. But then you said, in the meantime, I've never seen a more diverse group of Canadians. Is the physical camera that Rebel News wields the most powerful tool that citizens have against combating the lies of rising dictatorships?
1: I think so. And these days, every everyone has a camera on them all the time. I mean, when I was young... No one carried around a camera other than very unusual people or professional photographers. But now everyone has a very high-quality camera in their pocket. And so what's the difference between you and a, quote, official journalist? There's no difference. Your camera's just as good. The advantage you have is you happen to be where you are. So there's always someone around when news breaks. And, you know, I, I think that what we've learned is that There are some qualities that an excellent journalist has. But going to journalism school and working for a regime media outlet are not amongst them. You have great citizen journalists. And I think the camera is very important because seeing is believing. Let me give you a very quick example of one instance where that was uh, true. I wrote a book in uh, 2019 called The Libranos. It was a little play on The Sopranos. I was talking about Justin Trudeau's corruption. I was... Um, Hauled before two former RCMP officers for a one-hour interrogation, they claimed that my book violated the law. They claimed that my book was actually a secret campaign expense, even though it was just a normal book. There were 24 books about Trudeau published during that same election. My book was one of 24, um, but it was the only one that was very critical of Trudeau, and it was the only one investigated by police and. They convicted me and fined me $3,000 for not registering this book with the government as some campaign expense. It was just a book. And I knew when I was invited to Ottawa to go to that interrogation, I went to this high security government building, these two 30-year veterans, of the RCMP, one used to be on the mafia file, one used to be on the terrorism file or something, like senior guys grilling me for an hour. I thought, no one is going to believe me. No one's going to believe me that an author would be interrogated for an hour by two ex-cops.
0: No one's going to believe it. The only reason I recorded it. The only reason you should be interrogated as an author is if you write truly terrible fiction, and that would <laughs> that would earn a fine. Well,
1: they literally asked me why I did not register my book with the government. Well, because I'm not in Iran. I'm not in Venezuela, but I I had a I had a um, a uh, hidden camera on me for the really the first time I had done that sort of thing. I'm not like James O'Keefe. We don't do a lot of undercover work. But I thought, I've got to wear a camera into this interrogation. I've got to show people what it's really like. Because I just thought no one would believe me if I said in 2019, as it was, or 2020, in Canada, a free country, that an author would be interrogated about his book. And so that's an example of when the camera is essential. When you are challenging the reputation of a big and powerful force, you need the camera as proof. As the kids say, pics or it didn't happen. I had the pics of that interrogation. And Avi's very good at having lots of body cams on him, lots of cameras. So whenever something happens, he's got the proof of it, including when the police used to attack him and arrest him all the time.
0: To be absolutely fair, it would be rather tricky to send Avi undercover with a camera.
1: That's right. He's too (laughs) well-known. I hung out with him a bit in Melbourne Uh, uh, late last year, and it was so much fun. People just hollering, hey, how are you, mate? Wherever we went, he really has become a symbol, and he's you know, he's very recognisable. He's got a unique look.
0: Yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't do that. He, he, he could not do that, uh, that gay dinner date that uh, they just got done for the uh, Silicon Valley. That would not work out well for Arby. But look, I believe that uh, free speech platforms like Twitter are a huge threat to media companies because, as you rightly said, citizen journalists go to Twitter. And so Twitter has, for at least four or five years, been the source of immediate news, almost like a, a radio station. And uh, I think that they can have a significant impact on the power of dictatorships, which is why Elon Musk buying Twitter was such a big deal. But my favourite moment of the uh, Canadian trucker movement wasn't your speech, sorry, Ezra. It was actually when they took the fuel cans and they were distributing amongst the convoy, but to the soundtrack of the Thomas Crown Affair, and that one went viral. Is there something to be said with the power of humour? And do you think that Rebel News and the Freedom Convoy have won this argument in the end?
1: Well, no argument is ever completely won and no argument is ever completely lost because the argument starts up again the next day. And Rebel News, in that one month of February 2022, had 400 million views and impressions of our work, as much as our state broadcaster, the CBC. So we definitely won the idea battle then. But the other side is relentless. And they have been trying to rebrand the truckers as revolutionaries, as violent, extreme right wing, etc. So you can have a victory and you can clink champagne, but you've got to get back into the battle of ideas the very next day. And it's relentless. Elon Musk is very important in that he showed us the kind of behind-the-scenes censorship that's going on at Twitter, and obviously at YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, too. He's allowed other voices that were censored to come back to life. And I think he genuinely talks like someone who believes in freedom of speech. So he is a unique unicorn, and thank God for him. Um, But YouTube, Google... You know, those Google's the number one search engine in the world. I think YouTube is number two. It's owned by Google. Facebook, over 2 billion users. Instagram, part of Facebook. They're, they have such a stranglehold on ideas. They are still implementing the kind of censorship that Elon Musk revealed at Twitter. And I'm afraid that when artificial intelligence starts censoring tweets on a massive scale, not necessarily censoring tweets, but censoring everything, I... I'm afraid that we may be at the twilight of the golden age of free speech. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm afraid that it's going to accelerate. So there's no battle that's ever. I mean, take hope and that no battle is ever completely lost, but take fear and that no battle is ever completely won. We ban we won the battle of the truckers, but the other side wants to undo it.
0: Well, given what uh, we are taught about Western civilization. One might imagine that free speech should be a sacred pillar. And yet, in practice, human rights commissions set up by governments around the world, often under conservative leadership, I might add, appear to favour censorship. They have adopted this belief that in order to protect human rights, bureaucrats must maintain an edifice of digital barbed wire. In censorship, in your opinion, is censorship fundamentally an abuse of human rights? And does it ultimately make us less safe?
1: Yes. Uh, A few years ago, I was the publisher of a magazine and we published the Danish cartoons of Mohammed. So they were published first in Denmark, but I published them in Canada to show our viewers what all the fuss was about. And I was taken before a human rights commission for 900 days. And the complainant was a Muslim imam from Pakistan originally, who said I had hurt his feelings. And by the way, I'm sure I did. But there is no such thing as a human right not to be offended. That's a counterfeit human right that uses the language of human rights. But it's like fake currency. It devalues real currency. And I think we have lost the language of civil rights. And it's now being hijacked by people who use it in an Orwellian way. if, if You know, tr- uh, trust and safety. That was, the I think, the department at Twitter that was in charge of censorship. Safety? No one was being hurt other than their feelings. So we have to be on guard for these counterfeit human rights, like the human right not to be offended. But it's gone so much further than when I was prosecuted, um, um, you know, around 10 years ago now um, for the Danish card. About 15 years ago, really. It's back then. There were voices, including liberal voices, who were appalled by the fact that I was being brought before the government because I published some cartoons. Even liberals could see how appalling that was. Well, in the time since then, I'm afraid the center of gravity in media and universities and popular culture has moved towards censorship, towards cancel culture. And all those woke college kids are now lawyers and judges and bureaucrats and censors. And I think that there's never been more voices trying to censor us. Luckily, there's never been more voices wanting to be free. The battle continues. And you're part of that battle, Alexandra. And your online show is part of that. And we have to keep innovating. Because every time we try a new move, the censors try a new move. It's an endless battle. And that's why we can never stop.
0: Yes well, it, as part of that discussion over those cartoons, as someone said you can you can print and buy Mein Kemp in Canada, but you can 't print those cartoons, which is showing how yeah. off the rails this censorship has become. Well, look, Ezra, it's been an absolute privilege to have you on our show. And the only people standing between Western civilization and the new age of an iron curtain are journalists like yourself. And you bear an unequal weight of responsibility, protecting people who seem to wish to throw themselves in the fire of dictatorship. I mean, you may call them sheep, but to us, they're basically a lamb barbecue. My last and final question is, do you think those sheep will wake up in time or do you think they're going to head straight toward the barbecue?
1: I think a lot of people woke up during the pandemic, even people from different backgrounds than you and me. Like I say, Green Party, Labour Party, you know, My Body, My Choice people. I think there's a real range of people who have never been more awake. But just as terrifying is we learned that some people loved the lockdowns. They loved the mask. They loved snitching on their neighbours. They loved enforcing things on their neighbours. They loved the authoritarianism of it. They loved the crisis so I think that more people than ever see what's wrong, but we've, we've also revealed that more people than ever would go along with it again. I'm afraid that they could bring in a lockdown again and have even more support the second time.
0: Well, thank you so much, Ezra, for your time. Viewers can find Ezra at rebelnews.com. And that's all from us today. I'm Alexandra Marshall. Catch you all next week.